Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Beth Lambert, who has founded a group called Epidemic Answers. And you might think that's the COVID epidemic, but no, it's <laughs> we have so many epidemics now. And interestingly, many of them have similar foundational causes. But this is a different epidemic, one that I was still am passionate about, which is the epidemic of the tragic um complications that have happened to so many of our children. When I graduated medical school, the incidence of autism was one in 10,000, one in 10,000. And in fact, for the first 10 years of my practice, maybe more, I started in 85, like in the mid nineties, I didn't, I didn't have one autistic patient, not one, not one. <laughs> then <laughs> we started having an epidemic. And uh, that was right when I started really con transitioning from conventional medicine to natural medicine. So I, my, I, my reputation got out in the community. I, I attracted a lot of these patients, and I had hundreds of autistic children that I was treating in, in the in the mid to late nineties, and they just came from all over the country. And we were able to get some pretty good results with them, which is some simple strategies, you know, that isn't really rocket science. But Beth is passionate about this, and she'll tell you about that. And I really have, I haven't seen patients since for over 15 years. So I really am not in the trenches anymore, but I still have a passion for, for addressing this. And this is one of the reasons why I connected with Beth, because she's going to give us a lowdown of the lay of the land now, because it's changed considerably since I was practicing in the groups that are addressing this. And we'll discuss that. And she and Beth has founded a group too, that I'm hoping will I can facilitate collaborating with some of these other groups. So with all that background, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And I'm happy to be here. And I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about the autism epidemic and all the other epidemics that are affecting our kids sure. as well. So why don't you give us a little bit about your history and uh, we can go from there. Sure. So um, I really got into this when I was a parent and I had children that had some symptoms, nothing too concerning, but it was enough to seek out answers in conventional medical offices. And um, I also, as a new parent, saw that there were so many problems with all of my peers and their children. So, you know, you had baby playgroups where several children had um, reflux and were on reflux medications. And you had people who were getting diagnoses with autism and autoimmune diseases and all these kinds of things. So that really got me uh, alert to something being wrong with this generation of kids. And so I um, decided to dig into it. Um, and I also found some answers for my own kids in integrative medicine. And also when I was getting answers for my kids um, in the offices of integrative practitioners and holistic practitioners, I came across parents who were recovering their kids from all kinds of conditions that I thought at the time were genetic and lifelong. So autism being one autoimmune diseases that, you know, you really thought were going to be something they would have their whole life. But here I was getting these anecdotes and these stories of these kids who had fully reversed these conditions and got back on track and got healthy and just went on to lead normal lives. So that really blew my mind. And I felt like 
Well, if this is possible for, you know, my kids got their symptoms resolved and all these other children are getting better. Why isn't this our standard of care? Why isn't this available for every child? And why doesn't my conventional pediatrician talk about this? So that really began a quest for me. So I ended up writing a book about the new childhood epidemics and the environmental root causes. It's called The Compromised Generation. And also I cataloged these kids who were getting better and, and told their stories. And so since that time, that was about 2009, I have been documenting stories of kids who have reversed all kinds of conditions. And I have launched a nonprofit organization to help connect parents with the resources they need to help their kids get on the road to recovery. And subsequently also started a research study, several research studies now to look at the environmental causes of autism, of ADHD, of autoimmune diseases, um, and also what can be done to help reverse these kids. So it's really become a life mission for me to help people understand that their kids don't need to be sick. And there's plenty of tools and resources we have today to solve this epidemic. We j- it's just information and access to resources. And that's really it. And because that's the answer, I'm just hell bent on getting that message out there. Oh, great. Yeah, the reason we connected was partially related to your research efforts, because I believe that the the director of your research foundation is Chris Damo, and he was the co-author of my pa- recent paper that was published in Nutrient on uh, linoleic acid and its dangers. So I'm grateful for him for connecting to it, connecting us. Yeah, and and he's heading up our research project. It's called Documenting Hope. We have two IR, IRB-approved research studies looking at again the environmental causes of these chronic conditions and what we can do to reverse them. Our first study is gathering tons of information about what it means to be a child in modern America. You know, what are they eating? What are, what are they putting on their skin? What are they doing all day long? Screen habits, sleep, stooling, anything you can imagine that is as part of their health. Um, and we correlate all of these things with uh, health outcomes, symptoms and diagnoses, et cetera. And then our other study is actually an intervention study. And it looks at what, you know, a small group of children who have a chronic health condition Um, And we do a deep dive on each child. What's going on underneath the surface? What are the root causes of this child's diagnosis? And then we help them over an 18-month program to reverse their condition. And we document that along the way. So, you know, we're not only trying to understand what is causing these conditions, but what we can do to reverse them. Um, And we know that we need to gather the evidence because, you know, for over 10 years, I've been talking to physicians in particular who will say, well, there's no evidence that autism is reversible. That's only anecdotal. Well, of course, let's do something about that. <laughs> you know, if it's only anecdotal, why aren't we doing some research to demonstrate that it is possible? Why don't we pull together some evidence of hope for these for these children who are impacted? Well, we know the answer to, the, to that question <laughs> because research would be funded by the government and that's diametrically opposed to the wishes of the big pharma, which then they're in strong collusion with. So they're never going to, the NIH is never going to fund these studies. Never. Right. right. Um, so, uh, I would be interested if you could provide us a background historically of groups like yourselves that have been, um, uh, around to help people with similar, similar missions. Uh, when I was actually, before I go there, I, I neglected to mention the reason why I believe I didn't see any autistic patients for the first 10 years of my practice. Mm-hmm. It's related to a law that was passed in 1986. I think it's the National Vaccine Compensation Something Act. Uh, and essentially provided total immunity. It was not total, but 
eventually migrated and progressed into total immunity against prosecution for any side effects or damage due to the vaccine because the vaccine companies at the time threatened to stop making vaccines unless they were provided this protection. And uh, the alternative they proposed was to have a fund set up and there were taxes applied to all the vaccines. It was a few dollars a vial, but it adds up to significant amounts that were put into this fund that was awarded to victims of the vaccines. And there, I mean, there are, to this date, there's been three, four billion dollars awarded in vaccine injuries, but that is, they put the collapse on that down the last few years. And it seems like hardly any funds are ever going to be awarded again, because there is, they've made it virtually impossible to prove that you are vaccine damaged. But anyway, that bill was passed in 86, and it took the pharmaceutical companies a few years to take advantage of this bill. And that's an advantage they did. They rolled out a lot of vaccines and it took it took them a few years to do it. But around the 1990, early 90s, they started cranking them out. It went from 15 total jabs they've got before the age of five to triple or quadruple that. So I think that's why I hadn't seen any because it's the, the the primary catalyst, and I think Bobby Kennedy agrees with this, you know, this too. Is is really the vaccines that catalyze this, even though the con- conventional mainstream uh, media will say no, that's been debunked, that's been proven. They uh, Andy Wakefield catalyzed a lot of that research in the late '90s because he's published studies that implied or suggested that MMR was an issue, uh, and you know a lot of counter in uh counter our articles countered that just to to crush that concept were 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 launched so anyway um that's why i think it is and we'll, we'll certainly talk about that later but if you we can go back to the other organizations because when i was practicing um there's a few there was a defeat autism now mm-hmm. which was founded by bernie rimland who passed away a few years ago and then there's, of course, Autism One and, and others that I'm unaware. Well, um, TACA, T-A-C-C-A, I speak. I was actually the last autism event I spoke at was at TACA. And uh, there's probably others. So maybe if you could just summarize that more accurately and uh, give us your perspective of the, um, the lay of the land, so to speak. Yeah, so there were, um, in the 1980s, uh, there was the beginning of a movement of parents who suspected that that their child's condition, autism, was not necessarily genetic and just brain-based and lifelong, um, and physicians that they worked with who began to ask questions. Maybe this is something that's reversible. Maybe maybe this is a whole body uh, condition. Maybe this is systemic. Maybe there's something we can do. And they started looking into the, the GI tract. They started looking into toxicity and nutrition and all these kinds of things that maybe you wouldn't have looked into um, if, unless you had seen some improvements along the way by making changes. And so that really did begin a movement. And you mentioned Defeat Autism Now was one of the first sort of physician and parent movements where they, they you know, they got together and had conferences and Autism One was another. I would say the, the biggest legacy of, of that um, movement right now is probably TACA, um, which is, a ta- um, used to be called Talk About Curing Autism. Now they're um, 
has a different name. It's um, something about you know, autism together, but they are still looking at the root causes of autism and helping provide resources for parents that have a child that are looking for nutrition changes and how to detoxify a child and how to approach it from a biomedical perspective. Um, a lot of these organizations have really struggled to gain traction though, because, you know, again, the experience for most parents is, you know, you can go directly to your, your developmental pediatrician or your regular pediatrician. And they'll say, you know, I'm thinking of taking my child on a gluten-free dairy-free diet, or I'm thinking of giving them some nutritional supplements, or, you know, I'm going to try this therapy over here that isn't ABA because right now the only thing that's reimbursed for autism is pretty much ABA, some PT and OT. Why why don't you expand on what ABA is? So ABA is applied behavioral analysis, and it is essentially a, a therapeutic that is retraining a child or helping to almost mold them into expected or typical behaviors. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, the, the way I perceive ABA is that while it has helped a lot of families and a lot of families use it, um, they may be using it in, in a way that isn't the most helpful for the child. So I use the analogy of like taking some dry pasta and um, trying to take dry pasta and get it to, to fit into nicely into a round bowl. Right. If you'd have to crunch it and break it to get get it in the bowl, let it go and get in the bowl. But what you need to do first is you need to cook the pasta. You need to make it malleable. You need to make it ready and then it'll fit nicely. And that's why I think of ABA is like you're trying to teach these children to do behaviors and things that are expected, but their bodies aren't ready for it. So they've been impaired developmentally. They have um, gut imbalances. They have all kinds of toxicity in their bodies. They have brains and and bodies that aren't talking to each other, the communications uh, out of whack. So that needs to be addressed first. And that's why I talk about root causes, because if you can address the root causes and what's going on that precipitates the behaviors we call, you know, or associate with autism, then you're going to have all kinds of success using um, modalities like ABA or OT or PT. And, and they can all be helpful modalities, but not until you look at some of the things that precipitated the symptoms in the first place. What is really going on that that got this child to this place? So um, that's where we are right now. So like you go to your conventional choices and you have ABA, PT, OT. No one's asking about the child's diet. No one is asking about how they're sleeping or how they're pooping or how they're, you know, they're, are they going outside? Are they sitting in front of a screen? Nobody's asking those questions, but those are all really important for kids, especially kids on the spectrum. They're all important for all kids. But when you're talking about a child who, you know, is not going to be able to maybe live independently unless we, we intervene, who may not be able to do things for themselves unless we intervene, you have to start asking questions about their physical health, the health of their whole body, because the brain is connected to the body. And if you have something out of imbalance, uh, out of balance in the body, it's going to impact your brain and it's going to precipitate symptoms of autism. So going back to your original question about, you know, the the origins of this whole movement is there were a lot of parents and, and practitioners who started asking the right questions, asking about nutrition, asking about their environment. And when they followed the path to, you know, to bring their child's body back into balance by, you know, eating nutritious foods, getting them outside, making sure they're sleeping, making sure their environment is detoxified, the symptoms of autism started evaporating. So that to me is, um, you know, so profoundly inspiring. If we know by changing the environment that you can improve this child's life and perhaps, you know, drop that diagnosis, help them to thrive. Why wouldn't we be pursuing these options? So that's where, you know, TACA came in to try and um, to close that gap. Epidemic Answers has started to not just do that for uh, kids with autism, but for kids with all kinds of chronic conditions, whether it's type one diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or autism, you just look at the root causes 
And your child can have a better outcome if you make those changes that, that you need to, to their environment and their, and their lifestyle. Well, great. Um, so <clears throat> perhaps now you can transition into what you believe in your experience for the last 14 years or so, 15. When did you start this? So I, I really started in about 2009. Okay, so 14 years ago. Um, in the last 14 years, what your impression is, because you've done a lot of work in this and you know, you're in the trenches with real people trying these interventions and seeing what reverses it. What, what do you believe are the biggest root causes that contribute to this problem? Pandemic or epidemic, sorry. Yeah, it's an epidemic. Actually, it probably is a pandemic. <laughs> yes, both. Uh, the, you know, I've been listening to parents' stories and physician stories for all that time. And I believe stories are sacred. And when you start listening to the stories, you start getting the clues and you start getting the, you know, the breadcrumbs of what's going on here. That's where I started. Um, you know, and you would hear about the, the gut issues in, in autism. And, you know, people would often say that the gut issues were secondary to autism as if like the autism was causing the gut issues, constipation, diarrhea, um, pain, and all of that is he needs to be flipped on his head. Maybe the gut is causing the, the symptoms of autism. And, and in the last 10 years, people have started to really make the connection between the gut and the brain and how, you know, what's going on in the gut actually impacts the brain. So we are getting so much closer to understanding what specifically and exactly is contributing to, to autism in particular. But if you also listen to the stories to the parent of the parents, you'll hear a variety of stories. You hear the stories where a child was developing normally, had his 18 month shots or his two year shots and then regressed into autism. But you also hear stories of parents who have a child who never had any vaccines and still got autism. You hear the stories of um, children who had 10 ear infections in their first two years of their lives and were on antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic. You know, you hear stories of families who were in moldy environments and then they moved out of the environment and then, you know, the child's symptoms evaporated. So there are all these stories that if you begin looking at, you know, why is it, you know, what is it, is it mold? Is it antibiotics? Is it vaccines? At the end of the day, when you start looking in the literature and you start compiling all of these stories, you begin to see a picture of what is causing autism. And it's mm -hmm. what we call the total load of modern living. Now, mm -hmm. The total load is a concept that's been around, you know, for a very long time, especially in environmental medicine, as you know. Yeah, Dr. Doris Rapp was popularizing that. She had told it a little bit different. She filling up your barrel. I don't right. know if she's still alive, but she was she was a an amazing woman. I hope she is. She's, she's great. Yeah, she's an amazing woman, and she's one of the first people to talk about how food can impact your child's behavior and mm -hmm. your child's handwriting and their learning and food sensitivities and allergies. I mean, she's amazing. Bill Ray also talked a lot about mm -hmm. the, um, body burden and, and, and what that looks like in terms of developing chronic illnesses in adults. It was Patricia yeah. Lummer who wrote a book called Outsmarting Autism, who first applied the concept of total load to neurodevelopmental conditions like autism, where she would say, basically it isn't one thing that causes autism. It's really a perfect storm, a total load. It's too many stressors of modern living on a body that doesn't have enough resources to withstand those stressors. So here's an example. Why is it that two children go into a pediatrician's office, one gets their you know 18 month vaccines and the other one gets their 18 month vaccines. One develops autism and the other one doesn't. Is it genes? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, what the child ate that day? Is it the fact that one child had you know a sickness and the other one didn't. Was it because this child was on antibiotics when he had vaccines and this one wasn't? I mean, there's so many variables in each child and in each story. So that's where I think the total load 
concept or total load theory really stands up is because there's so much medical literature on modern living and the ways that we live in the modern world and how it damages your health. Mm-hmm. Talked about like linoleic acid as an example, inflammatory foods, things, processed foods, sugar, the enormous quantity of sugar that modern children consume, the number of pharmaceuticals can children have, the antibiotics, for instance. We go into a pediatrician's office as a parent and you have a sniffle or a sore throat or whatever. It may not even be bacterial in nature. And, you know, you still get a prescription for antibiotics. What do antibiotics do? They destroy your gut bacteria. What is the significance of that? That gut bacteria regulates everything from your immune system to your digestion of food and your metabolism. So all of those factors um, are going to impact a child, especially when they are in that, you know, critical developmental time. So if you think about, you know, an infant and all the work they have to do to get to crawl and walk and talk and in relate to, to the humans in their lives, all of that takes an enormous amount of energy. And if their body is burdened with toxins from the laundry detergent and from the, you know, mercury and cadmium on their toys and from the processed foods and inflammatory foods they're eating and the sugar, which is inflammatory in the body, and their, you know, their vaccines and their antibiotics and their proton pump inhibitors, like all these things are going into our little baby bodies, right? And these little baby bodies have to withstand that enormous load of health stressors. And if they don't have the resources, they don't have enough nutrition in their body. They don't have enough of what they need to withstand those stressors. That's when you're going to see them begin to develop symptoms, whether those are skin symptoms like eczema allergies, or whether it's neurodevelopmental symptoms, right? As I mentioned, as they're going through this developmental timeline, if you have an enormous burden of stressors, inflammation going on in your body, and you're supposed to be developing vision, or you're supposed to be developing speech, your body's too busy dealing with all those stressors. So you're going to have an arrested, impaired, or delayed development for that child. So to the the short answer to your question is, it's not one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not caused by one thing. It's caused by modern living. And all the things that we do that we think are normal, the food we eat, the medicines we take, the activities we do, you know, from uh, sitting inside and um, playing on devices, rather than doing the things that humans evolved to do over millions of years, we are so disconnected from nature. We don't eat natural food. We don't do natural activities. We don't even see the sunlight anymore. So that in a nutshell is really what's causing not just autism, but the epidemic of asthma, obesity, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, it's all part of the same thing. It's just that because of our individual unique load and sort of when we were hit with that load, that is what determines what your actual diagnoses and symptoms are. Plus genes, you know, genes are important too, you know, like that's, that's, you know, those are the, the tools you're given to detoxify. That's whether or not you're a good methylator, whether you are able to um, handle that load. So it's a gene environment interaction, but no child really has the equipment to be able to survive or thrive in this modern world because we have so many stressors. Yeah, genes are unfairly implicated frequently because the genes are not static. They're not, if you've got it, you're doomed. No, they're epigenetically regulated. So the expression of those genes is modulated quite significantly with lifestyle factors. So occasionally you have some snips that are really problematic, but that is the exception from my experience. So thank you for explaining that. And another question I have, it appears to me that 
Taka and the other groups that are there to support the families with autism, give them practical resources, recommendations to help their child improve, that you're of all the organizations out there, you're, you're the seem to be the only one that's committed and dedicated to doing the research to quantify, objectify, and measure exactly what interventions are likely to be effective. Is that correct or am I mistaken in that? We are the only ones that I know of that are doing the type of research that we're doing. One, which is, you know, our first study is looking at total load and, you know, our preliminary data really validates the fact that it isn't one thing. It's the total load of environmental factors because the, the more stressors a child has, the worse their health outcomes. Our data in our first study is, is showing that. Um, we have more work to do, but that's, you know, the preliminary signal we're seeing in the noise. And the other thing is that I don't know of anyone, even in um, even in sort of the functional medicine world, that is doing research on looking at the totality of a human being and using multiple interventions at once. Because what is it that we do in research in, in the Western world? We look at one thing at a time. We have this very reductionist mindset where we're like, all right, well, you know, how are we going to know it works unless we look at one thing in isolation at a time? But that's not how the real world works. You know, these kids that have recovered from autism, they never did one thing at a time. Are you kidding? The parents did everything all at once and got as much going on to support that child and get their body what it needed to course correct. So since we've been watching for over 10 years, these kids get better. We've been paying attention to what they've done. I mean, that's the key right there, right? I don't think a lot of researchers have really listened to the parents and listened to the integrative physicians who are in the trenches doing the work. We've been listening to them and saying, well, what have you been doing? What did it take? You can't just do one thing. You have to address diet at the same time you're addressing sleep, at the same time you're addressing stooling, the same time you're addressing integrating the brain and the body with therapies that help correct those developmental problems that, that emerge. So by doing all of those things at once, we hypothesize that these kids can get better, they, they, that they can drop their diagnoses. So that's why we're actually doing the research like this, because people don't believe it. Anecdotes don't carry weight, but we need to do the research in order to convince the medical community that this really is the way to go, that these kids are developing these conditions because of the way we're living. We have to change the way they're living in order to get them better. Yes, so I think it's a it's a noble effort, for sure. Uh, you started in two thousand nine, and two years later, I didn't know of your work, but we started a health liberty coalition, which were four nonprofits that were committed to educating the public and advancing the research in important areas. Because we realized at the time that yeah, it's okay to educate and inform people on our website, but you know that's really not going to change the, the the spectrum as much because there's there's impediments and obstacles to people pursuing their health goals and the challenges that obstruct them uh that are beyond their control which is why we, one the reason we founded that was because and the, the primary impetus was uh glyphosate at the time and we made some pretty damn good improvements in that we can at the time 99.9 percent .9 of people in the united states did never heard of the word glyphosate or uh, Roundup 
or they didn't know the glyphosate they, they or GMOs. That, that's what they didn't know what a GMO was. 99% of the people. So that is not the case now. It's probably 99% of people who haven't heard of GMOs or one per, who, who know of it rather. So it's been a significant transition that went all the way to, you know, Monsanto having to be sold, bear buying them, their stock de- decreasing so much when the lawsuits were effective. And at, uh, I mean, billions of dollars in damages were awarded for uh, GM, uh, Roundup or glyphosate. So I don't know if I can't, my memory doesn't recall it, whether or not the court overturned those rulings or not, but that was some major victories. But anyway, this, and then we've been effective in Mercury, Charlie Brown, Consumers for Dental Choice literally getting a worldwide ban on mercury and dentistry, which is so, you know, our efforts have been successful over over the last decade. We've made some real impacts. And I think at this point, a year, 10 years after we started, it's, it's time to adopt a new partner. So we're choosing to support your organization. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, we, well, we need that. And, I, and I'm grateful for that support because um, I really do think that this is the ticket for the, these kids. We have to start thinking differently about how they're living. And the evidence is there in the medical literature, by the way. When I was talking about autism and the relationship to the gut, you know, 14 years ago when I started, there was Natasha Campbell McBride who was talking about the relationship between the gut and the brain and how the gut bacteria needed to be looked at. Sub- subsequently, there's a whole lot of medical literature supporting that connection. But you know that there's the bench to bedside gap, right? Where it takes, mm-hmm. you know, 17 years for that research to make it into the clinic. We need to accelerate that because the kids don't have 17 years because that's their entire childhood. Mm-hmm. And that's a critical window. So we feel like we're, we need to just put more resources and more energy and, um, you know, and get more more parents aware because the parents are going to are going to do this work on their own once they know about it. Once they find out that autism is reversible, that rheumatoid arthritis is are, are reversible, they're going to seek that because that is what they want for their child. So thank you for your support. It, it, it really yeah. means. Well, rheumatoid, I've been treating was I started treating rheumatoid arthritis in the late 80s, and I literally help reverse thousands, and that's not hyperbolic, thousands of patients with some pretty strategic and simple interventions. And now I could radically increase that with my knowledge, which is, uh, you know, because I've learned quite a few things since I stopped seeing patients. Linoleic acid is clearly a game changer, and I had no idea how profoundly powerful that is. And I'm particularly interested in having that variable assessed and researched to to, 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 to tease out the details because I my I'm convinced it's playing a major role. Again, it could be one of the reasons why these other exposures that you have make a de- difference. And and the foundational reason may be the underlying amount of linoleic acid that's embedded in the, in the child's tissues that could have been received from the parents or and or the diet. So I'm I'm fairly convinced it's going to be massive, and. Uh, also, there's, you know, I've, I've started studying Ray Pete's work recently this year, and it's come to my attention. And even when I was doing the linoleic acid research, research, and what you mentioned earlier is that sugar is frequently vilified, frequently vilified as causing inflammation, as you stated. And I think that's inaccurate. I think it's unfair. And I think the more accurate description would be the processed foods. It's the processed foods, it's not the sugar. Because in the processed foods, there is sugar for sure. 
but there's also more seed oils than sugar, sure. much more seed oils. So I think it's been uh, accompanied and it, it's a confounding variable that isn't considered. Now, it doesn't mean carbohydrates are uh, unfairly criticized. My first book in 2004, that was nearly 20 years ago now, was the no grain diet. And that is a, a, an approach I've had quite a bit of good success with autistic children, but it's it's successful for a variety of different reasons. Yes, there's an oleic acid in, in grains. There's no question, not all grains. White rice seems to be pretty benign. There's virtually no linoleic acid, but grains for sure. And other types of carbohydrates, these resistant starches, they get into the gut. So your body can't digest it. The fiber trans transitions to the colon, and the and it serves as fuel for these gram-negative bacteria, which could produce en endotoxin, and that causes loads of inflammation, unquestionably, and increases serotonin levels. And serotonin is probably another major contributing factor for these kids. So you know, lowering serotonin levels, increasing GABA, an inhibitory neurotransmitter, uh, could do loads. And I. I'm so excited to support research to document these suspicions because I, I'm fairly convinced. I'm one of my, I mean, I have some skill sets. And one of them is, is that I have the ability to make fairly accurate predictions based on limited data that supports it scientifically in a randomized control trial. And, but I'm convinced that if we look at the linoleic acid and these, uh, complex carbohydrates as contributing factors, we're going to find that it may be, it may be amazing. And then maybe it's the primary culprits. And then you throw all these other variables on there, like mold exposure, like vaccines, um, and a variety of other things. And you, you know, let limited sun exposure, uh, EMF exposures. Then this the combination that the, the the full barrel or the load, the total load, that's going to that's going to tip them over the the point. So, what we're, we're going to do is uh, put a link down that you can donate to Beth Beth's foundation or organization, and then for every dollar you donate, we're going to match that. Thank you. That's yeah, amazing. So, I think it'd be good. Uh, and, and even, and if you're intrigued with this or have a child yourself, uh, with this condition or a friend or a family member, then this November, you're having an event in Orlando, which is not too far for me, which makes it really convenient. Interesting. I will have spoken three times this year, your event being the third. And every event was in Orlando. I did not have to fly once, <laughs> which is so good. I don't enjoy flying. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your event, who's going to be there, and what's the purpose and the, the goals? Sure. Um, we're having a conference in Orlando called Adventures in Healing. It's November 10th through 12th this year, 2023. And it is meant to simulate um, some of what we're learning in our in our intervention study. Our intervention study through Documenting Hope is called the Flight Study. And part of what we're doing in there is bringing in experts from a, a whole different variety of perspectives. So we have a nutrition expert, somebody who understands the environment and what kinds of environmental toxins can impact a child. We have somebody who does functional medicine. We have people who bring in uh, structural health, like the, you know, the dental piece, like the oral motor piece, which is important vision. All of these pieces are being um, looked at in each individual child in our in our intervention study. So in this 
conference, we wanted to represent that with speakers. So we're having speakers who can speak about environmental um, elements like toxins, or I mean, Amy Ziff, who knows a lot about the environmental toxins in your personal care products and how to get those out of your home. We have um, two nutritionists, diet, dietitian and nutritionist coming in to talk about specialized diets for kids with chronic conditions, autism and, and autoimmune diseases and more. We have functional medicine doctors coming in to talk about things like mold in the environment. We have doctors who are coming in to talk about rewiring the brain to the body. So as I mentioned before, we have, um, you know, these kids who've gone through this developmental trajectory and it's been interrupted along the way. And so you need to go back and do re rehabilitative work. That's one of the pieces I think that's often missed in autism in particular is that we look at the gut and we try and, you know, repair the gut by getting the balance of good bacteria in there. We detoxify their environment, all great stuff. But if you haven't done the rehabilitative work to revisit the milestones they missed, then they're not going to, you know, catch back up to where they where they should be. So we have a lot of those kinds of perspectives represented at, at our conference as well. It's a two day conference. It is um, one uh, professional track and one parent track. So we have all different kinds of professionals: MDs, DOs, uh, naturopaths, uh, speech language pathologists, OTs, you know, all kinds of professionals. And then we have um, parents as well. And um, obviously you're gonna be our plenary speaker speaking to both, so the um, professional and the parent track. And we're also on Sunday, the very last day of our uh, conference, we're gonna be sharing some of the insights out of our research. So you were you know, asking before about the linoleic acid, we're capturing information about what kids are eating. We're asking, you know, right down to whether they're using um, fresh herbs in their diet or whether, you know, what kind of oatmeal they're eating, anything you can imagine. Um, we're collecting data on that. So we'll be revealing some of our results from our research on Sunday, the very last day of the conference. Yeah. And the, uh, interestingly, I believe the, um, food surveys are frowned upon and typically in research because of their relative inaccuracy, but I think you're doing, uh, blood samples or tissue analysis for linoleic acid, aren't you? In the children in the flight study, we're yeah. doing um, we're taking blood, urine, stool. We're doing QEGs. We're doing cl um, clinical assessments. So we're we're doing functional dentistry, developmental optometry. We're looking at in retained infant reflexes. So each child that's enrolled in our intervention study is getting about as deep a dive as you could uh, imagine. Metabolomics, genomics, the whole thing. Because what we're doing is trying to see where this child has imbalances. Because our hypothesis is if you correct the imbalances, they get back on track and can lose their diagnoses. Perfect. Yeah. So, and the patient isn't paying for these. Your foundation is. That's right. I mean, think that, you know, one of the barriers, again, I've been documenting this for 10 plus years, the stories of the kids that got better and the kids that didn't. didn't. And there's kind of, it's almost formulaic now at this point, based on those anecdotes. So we designed the study based on, you know, what Your observations. Those anecdotes, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, each kid is, um, you know, going through all these tests that they wouldn't, you know, they would never be able to have this kind of rigor. They wouldn't be able to pay for that. We have like 36 different labs we're doing on these kids, and, you know, different types of boutique labs. So we're trying to take that barrier out of the study. Take in, you know, we also have amazing companies that are donating products like organic mattresses and um, lab tests and supplements and all kinds of things to help these families to be as successful as possible because we are documenting everything. And that is a little bit extra rigor than you would see in the, you know, out in the world. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, it's helping them through the process. We're facilitating their journey on the road to recovery. Yeah. It's, it's tragic that we need to do this, that the country and society is so fatally flawed 
and damaged that it facilitates these corporations' behavior to essentially rape and pillage the population to make profits and cause all this collateral damage, one being this autism epidemic, and bear no responsibility for paying for any of the damage. I mean, the 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 ultimate representation or example of that would be the COVID pandemic and the jabs. I mean, which in some ways is will likely dwarf the the, the damage being done to, to the kids. But it, it's all one and the same because <laughs> the COVID jab is now part of the CDC recommendations for annual vaccines that got added. I don't know if it's actually... I mean, you might not, I don't know if it's been implemented yet, but now clearly this is the CDC recommendation, but it's this whole scam that they developed because there's a significant number of states. I don't know the precise number, 15, 20, certainly not the majority, but that once the CDC makes a recommendation for a childhood vaccine, boom, it's automatically adopted in that whole state. So it's required if you're going to participate in the public education system, school system for that state. So my guess is a lot of kids this year are going to be getting the COVID jabs. Probably. I mean, it's on the, once it's on the childhood schedule, you also have immunity as a pharmaceutical company too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the unsaid secret um, that gets that that liability protection for the pharmaceutical companies. I do feel like there is, has been a, a, a really bright spotlight on the COVID jabs in particular, and there's a lot of research going on in a way that there hasn't been. Um, you know, people haven't been as critical as the childhood of the childhood vaccine. Well, of course, yes. I do think, for instance, you know, there's a, a gastroenterologist who's doing research on the COVID jabs and how it impacts the gut. And it appears in the research to be wiping out um, bifidobacteria, which, of course, is critical for so mm. many functions in your body. So, you know, that to me is, you know, a, a little bit of, uh, a, you know, hope that they may not persist because they're they're being well studied right now, I think. Yeah, and the follow up from that could be. Fantastic. I mean, if in the best case scenario, I mean, that really, that is the silver lining of this is that a lot of people were irreparably damaged and disabled permanently. Many died. Uh, and hopefully the silver lining is that because of all this pathology and trauma, there's been a light focused on it and people are, are a little more uh, significantly more skeptical of vaccines in general. And when the information finally comes out and is widely accepted, uh, I think the whole system's going to turn around. At least that's my hope, but unless they crush us again with something else, the next crisis, which is not never too far off it seems. Well, I think it's, you know, this, this experience, I hope, has given us a moment to reflect on the hubris of humanity. And, and sometimes we come out thinking that we're gonna solve it with technology or it, you know human innovation. When we are seeing that an entire generation of children is being impaired because of technology and innovation and modern living. So, you know, we really need to have a moment of humility where we go back and we say, all right, you know, creation being what it is was designed perfectly and we have all the tools and resources we need to heal in nature, but we just don't, we don't believe in that enough. And so we, we go and create these tools that oftentimes do more damage when we're trying to just be healthy. We really need to get back to sort of our ancestral roots and eat food that we're supposed to eat and live in an environment we're supposed to live in and not really think that the only answers are through 
innovation and technology. I'm not knocking innovation and technology at all. That's not where all the answers are when it comes to human health. Well, I would be a bit more liberal with respect to forgiving a lot more people than you implied in the hubris of humanity. I don't think it's humanity as, as a whole that's responsible here. I think there's a very few select people, the vast majority, probably under 1% who are directing this, maybe under 0.1% or 0.001% who have no illusions. They have specific agendas that they want implemented. And, you know, because of their wealth that has been acquired over many, many centuries, they have they essentially control huge corporations and governments and have this massive amount of influence that can direct things. And and one of those influences being the media and that's been effectively able to propagandize the a vast segments of the population, maybe even the majority, they're irreversibly brainwashed. So they believe this. And, you know, then there are the people who are, who are going to want these technological innovations, but they're left to their own devices. And if we were insulated somehow from these advances in technology and, and lived more simply and ate more purely what we were designed to eat, we wouldn't be seeking these things out. Yeah, technology would be really cool for some advances and conveniences for sure. But it's it's a dual-edged sword, and, and we have those uh, exposures. You know, EMF is the classic one. It just makes, makes life so damn convenient. With they have a cell phone, the this more powerful supercomputer than anything that ever they got shot up to the moon in your palm of your hand, and to be able to communicate to people all around the world with video. I mean, so I can remember clearly as a child going to in Chicago to the music science. Museum of Science and Industry. That was it. It was on Lakeshore Drive. It still is. And I remember seeing these a, a video conferencing call system that was you know, a prototype or something. And it was just the most amazing thing, you know. And now we all have it in the palm of our hands, and pretty inexpensively. But that convenience comes at a price for sure. Uh, and many times the cost of that price is known, but it's widely suppressed through the industries that are uh, benefited from its adoption. So I'd be a little gentler on humanity. (laughs) Some of humanity. I mean, I think it's just that we just don't know. As you said, it's what information do we have access to? And unless you're digging and looking for and trying to understand why we're the sickest humans we've ever been on planet Earth, Unless you're really looking for that, you're not gonna you're not gonna have that information. No one's gonna tell that information to you. Certainly not in a mainstream media way. So, and if they do, they're gonna give you some kind of pharmaceutical band aid to cover up your symptoms. But it's mm-hmm. just logic. It's just plain logic. If you look at how we live as compared to our grandparents, I mean, the evolutionary jump we should need to make to live in the modern world. I mean, in the span of a hundred years, we've changed the way we live so drastically. That's just pure logic. You know, of course it's going to impact our physiological, biological systems. So that I think is the message we need to get out to people. Like, yeah, yeah. We don't need yeah, to shut down technology. We just need to understand that it's impacting us. Yeah, and with that very technology could be used to facilitate our adoption of strategies that could circumvent some of the consequences of this exposures for sure i mean because it is a dual-edged sword but you can find the good side of the sword and use it to carve out uh, a process that essentially allows you to essentially replicate the exposures that our ancestors had which is not hard to do i think for the most part i'm doing that 
but it, well, it is hard to do. It's but it's possible. Uh, if you, it requires a lot of commit, commitment and dedication, but and that's what I'm hoping to share when in my presentation at your event. So what I perceive are the big ones. You know, summarily, I mean, most people are not going to be surprised. I think the biggest, two biggest, are you absolutely have to get seed oils not only not only out of your diet, but you have to ideally measure your food very carefully, not continuously, not all the time, but once or twice. You know, maybe a week just to check to see what you're doing, or maybe. Only when you change your food intake, you know, to put a new, adopt a new food that integrated into the analysis because technology allows us to analyze our food for free. Now, it's not 100% precise, but it's pretty close to being highly accurate and, and very sensitive. So you can identify your diet and see exactly how many grams of linoleic acid you have in it. Most people are eating about 80 grams of linoleic acid a day, a day, a day. Uh, if you're about five, above five grams, your risk for disease goes up quite dramatically. 10 grams, forget it. You're you're way over the limit. I've fortunately been able to get my intake in under two grams. And I think that if we were to help people understand how to do this, and there's almost no cost involved thanks to technology because there's online tools that allow you to do this, uh, that we can help people get low linoleic acid dyes because they, they're shocked. They don't know that, you know, they input a food. I had no idea it had this much. You know, it's just like crazy uh, until you look at it and look at, you know, individualize and customize it for yourself. So I think that's one of the means outside. And well, the third one would be EMF too. But just being outdoors is so crucial and getting sun exposure, you know, does so many beneficial things aside from vitamin D. Uh, so, you know, those things don't cost anything and they can not only reduce autism and autism or diseases on the spectrum, but almost every other single chronic degenerative disease known to man. You know, all this epidemic we have, it's, you said it started over 100 years ago. And that is precisely when seed oil started becoming available, right after the Civil War. And it wasn't widely adopted, of course, until about 100 years ago, because it takes a while for a technology to penetrate the 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 uh, community uh but interestingly that's also when uh, ems were started you know we had the mention of the radio waves and such it were pretty mild back then compared to now but and they exponentially increased with the wi-fi transmitter in your hand that literally became pervasive you know in the early 2000s uh right. when the, with the adoption of iphone one Right. Well, the, the thing that can be overwhelming, I think, for the average person is that you, this is our culture. This is the way we live. So how am I supposed to know what's healthy? <laughs> and, you know, what do I do? And I think the the thing to remember is the, the cheapest, lowest cost, easiest thing to mm -hmm. do is just to try and remember that 100, 150 years ago, people lived totally differently and go back to that place where people lived outside, they touched the earth, they ate real food. And, you know, just try and emulate that to, to the best of your ability in your day-to-day -day life. And just used to have that constant reminder, you know, and it's, you have to step outside of our current culture. It, you have to live in a way that is counter culture, but that's the way to thrive in today's world is to be part of a counter culture where you're just living in sync with natural rhythms and, and with nature. Hard to do, but it is absolutely possible. And people have great health when they do. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's necessary. And I believe it's an essential strategy. If you even hope to have any chance of surviving the next crisis, the next crisis is, is inevitable. It's coming. It's on its way. 
is virtually a hundred percent guaranteed. I don't. We can't tell you when, but it's coming, and we can't tell you what it's going to be. But it'll be a crisis for sure. And when if you're adopting all these strategies beforehand, you're going to be resilient. You'll be able to survive the crisis, just as you would have survived the crisis if you had been doing these things before COVID. You you wouldn't got the infection, and hopefully you're. You, you would, it wouldn't have lost your critical thinking skills and been, been foolish enough to accept a jab. So, um, you know, that, that's my belief. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, I think it's so common for people to trust and, um, and hope and expect that the authorities that they've trusted their whole lives would have their best interests at heart. But I think what happened through this COVID experience is people realized that that wasn't necessarily the case. There is corruption in government, there's corruption in industry. And I think this was an eye opener for many people. And so now um, are they're, they're listening and paying attention in a way that they weren't probably before COVID. So I think we are in a different moment and I'm hopeful for that. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do, especially with regard to, you know, educating people about what's out there to help support their health, their family's health, and importantly, their children's health. Because the children have such a narrow window, right? We have to get in there while they're still so um, developmentally malleable. That's such an important time to really turn their health situation around. Okay, great. Well, we will put links to your organization and certainly to the event in November in Orlando. And I want to remind you that uh, I'm encouraging you to support Beth's organization in this process, because I think this is really important information that needs to be out there, not only to address the kids out there with autism, but also the, what what's going to be determined and, and identified and supported and validated is the validity of these interventions through well-documented research. And these documentations have implications beyond autism because essentially if you're treating autism and reversing that disease, you're almost, that's the, the blueprint for reversing virtually all disease. So there's benefits to all of us to, to, to advance the knowledge base so that we have confirmation of what we believe to be useful is shown to be uh, through the, through, through the, uh, the re- the hard research that's going to be applied to determine this. Yeah, I think that is such an important point that you just made about how autism really is the lens through which we can truly understand so many conditions of of modern living, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were some research, there was some research published that looked at, you know, they've looked at genes, right? They think autism is in the genes. So they're trying to identify the gene or the set of genes. And then there were research, there was research um, looking at over 200 genes implicated in autism. And they're like, aha, we found the 200 genes. <laughs> right. They're also implicated in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, mm-hmm. uh, you name it. So you are 100% right. If we can crack the nut of autism, show people a path forward, we help all these other conditions. And we actually developed a membership community called Healing Together, which is on our website, that shows people the path that we have been watching the families track that have been successful. It's a path forward and a way to not just reverse autism, but all of these modern living conditions, including the ones at the other end of the spectrum, like Alzheimer's. Yeah, and that is a support group that's available to people. That's a support group. Yep. And we show a step-by-step process about how to do the diet changes, how to change your environment, you know, what kinds of therapeutics to seek for your child's particular symptoms. We provide live support. I mean, that's the other, we do research, but we also provide support and education and outreach to families who are impacted and are looking for the tools and resources to reverse their child's condition. Great. Yeah. So, you know, the, the other condition that is 
very common and, and rapidly going to be the number one cause of death worldwide is cancer. And the reason I mentioned that is that it's for the last few decades, people have been believe, especially the scientists, physicians, and researchers, that this is a, a genetic disease and nothing could be further from the truth. That is a metabolic disease. And if, if you address the variables that are contributing to the mitochondrial dysfunction, shutting it down, not, a, not allowing your body to create energy with minimal toxic byproducts, then you're going to increase your risk for just about everything, including cancer, including autism, including heart disease. And thankfully, we have a pretty good idea what these variables are. So, and you're going to be supporting that and documenting it and researching this. So um, I'm just grateful that you're doing that work and it's going to be fun. Thank you. Thank you. We are what we, we came up with the name documenting hope because that's exactly what we're doing. We know there's hope for these kids. We've been documenting it for the last 10 years. We have tons of stories of recovery on our website. Now we just need to bring it into the medical and scientific community so that when you as a parent walk into your pediatrician and say, well, my child has autism, what should I do? They're going to say, don't worry, there's hope. Here's some things that you can do as opposed to, we're sorry, it's genetic, it's brain-based. We don't know what causes it. Like that's that's not where we need to be. We need to help these kids and we need to help them. Uh, get to their best potential. All right. Well, thanks so much. Anything else you want to add before we leave? No, I think that's it. We we have uh, so many resources for parents and, and just want people to know that we're we're there to support them and we're there to help them along the way. Did, did you give me the name of your site? I don't know if you did. Yep, um, epidemicanswers.org, which okay. is where educational resources are and documentinghope.com is our research site. Okay, and you can find information about the uh, the event at those sites too. The event is li linked there, but you can also go to conference.documentinghope.com. So all of it is uh, everything is linked on the websites, but if you want to go directly to the conference, it's conference.documentinghope.com. Okay, perfect. Well, I look forward to seeing you in, in person in November. Me too. Thanks again and thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.